0: you either know someone affected by a mental health disorder or you may have that challenge yourself. From depression to anxiety, schizophrenia to OCD, the ways in which mental health impacts the brain is varied. We've come a long way in understanding there's a biological basis to mental health, but to really make leaps and bounds, we also need to understand the basic neuroscience. In this episode, I'm talking to Professor John McGrath, An internationally respected psychiatrist and researcher whose work in mental health spans both fundamental and clinical science. Professor John McGrath, welcome. Can you start by telling me about your background? You've been a practicing psychiatrist and also a researcher. Have you always had a foot on both sides of the fence?
1: So I'm a Brisbane boy. I grew up in Brisbane and went to UQ. I remember going around doing my undergraduate training here on the St. Lucia campus, trained in psychiatry and really loved it. And then very quickly, After I completed some community psychiatry, I had the opportunity to work in a research unit that opened many windows for me that allowed me to see how much work needed to be done. I stopped treating patients a few years ago. I thought that my clinical skills were getting very rusty. So uh, now I do mainly uh, what I call dry lab work, where I I do epidemiology. We work with data. I work with data from Australia and, uh, and from Denmark. And more recently, I've been doing clinical trials.
0: What got you into psychiatry in the first place?
1: I think I was pretty interested in it as a medical student. uh, It seems like it's the final frontier. You know, I look at my colleagues in cardiology and I love them dearly. And I think it's so easy. It's just a big muscle pump, you know, that what's to learn. (laughs) And then you look at the brain and it's so poorly understood. So I I feel like mental illnesses are, well, they're common. They're the type of things that affect all of us. So, you know, depression, anxiety, substance use. We all know someone or we haven't had it ourselves that have had those disorders. And then you get the really crippling disorders like schizophrenia. I have an interest in understanding what goes wrong, when it goes wrong, and can we do something about it? And this is one of the defining features of my research. I've been looking for modifiable risk factors, things that we can change. And so the dream is that maybe eventually, and I'm talking about 10, 20, 100 years, we will be able to prevent some people going on to get mental illness well, we just have to do the work to learn whether that's feasible. It's a bit of a dream, but I think we have to set our goals high.
0: Is it important to have an open mind as a scientist and be prepared to change your position?
1: Absolutely. So the whole thing about science is you have to reject your favourite hypotheses. So it's like cricket. You set up your stumps, and then you try to bowl them down and you keep doing experiments, trying to reject them. And then If you can reject it, then you know you go down another path. We we did a very large randomized clinical trial where we added on a a compound that looked like it may help schizophrenia, and we spent a lot of money and, and spent about three years, four years doing it. And it turned out that this compound we were investigating did not help. That was devastating, and we felt gutted when we saw those results. But at least we could reject that hypothesis. And now we need to keep pushing on to come up with new compounds. So. The thing about doing science is that you should not fall in love with your hypotheses and you should be the first to reject them. And the metaphor that I use when I'm teaching students is building sandcastles on the beach. So it's great fun building a sandcastle. Spend a lot of loving time, very proud of it. And it's actually not that fun kicking it down as well. You kick it down, but it's really horrible if someone else kicks it down before you do. And so I always tell my students, if you're going to reject a hypothesis or your own hypothesis. You do it before anyone else does it. And that's what we do in science. the way science moves forward. We have ideas. Most of them are wrong. For every correct hypothesis, there's an infinite number of wrong ones. We do our best to come up with the right hypotheses, but we need to have an internal template that ideas will be wrong and we recalibrate and we come up with a better idea. And that's how science operates.
0: From the outside, it seems like science is working towards outcomes, certainty, accuracy, credibility. Where do mistakes, false starts and doubts fit in?
1: Well, I I think the issue of accuracy and certainty reflects what type of instruments we have. So I'm a huge fan of Galileo, the Italian inventor. And if you go to Florence, his museum has some of his early telescopes, the original ones that he built he made a very profound comment about how science should operate. And it goes like this, measure what is measurable, make measurable what is not so. And it's so concise, you have to kind of say it twice. But what he's saying is use your best telescopes to measure what you can. And if you can't measure what you want to measure, build a better telescope. So here in QBI, the Queensland Brain Institute, we are surrounded by the most amazing instruments, microscopes, not telescopes. And we can start to see things that we have never seen before. And that's what we need to do. We need to build better instruments because sometimes we just can't measure things. So we have to use very crude telescopes. And some of the work that I do in epidemiology is based on crude measures. So, for example, the work I'm doing in Denmark, I can learn about people that have gone to hospital for their depression. But I know that there are many people who have depression that never seek help, may get help from the GP, and don't show up in the hospital. So I know that my telescopes are imperfect. So then I do surveys. I've done several in Australia and I work with surveys overseas. This has been done in about 30 countries around the world, including Australia, where we get a geographically defined area. We identify all the houses. We randomly select houses, knock on the door, find out how many people live in the house. And of the adults, we randomly select one and we say... Could we interview you about your general health and well-being? And we ask them questions. And then in those surveys, after people have given consent, we ask them about mental illness and ask it in a respectful way. And people are quite open about that. And so that allows us to look at the type of people that have depression or substance use or anxiety, who do not seek help and who do not go into the hospital. And this is what I call the dark matter of epidemiology. Researchers need to to measure what we can with the available instruments. And then if we can't measure it, we need to make a better instrument.
0: What doubts have you had? What wrong turns have you taken in your research?
1: Oh, many. (laughs) So we usually try to um, sort of suppress them. But actually, this is a really important question because I find for a researcher, if he or she faces the results that allow them to reject the hypothesis, then that is quite a profound moment in discovery. Niels Bohr, who's a fantastic Danish physicist, who I've been a big fan of long before I got this current fellowship, said, no paradox, no progress. And he was acknowledging the fact that sometimes when the results come out the way you did not expect it, that's where the discovery can come from. So in my own research, I was looking at season of birth. So there's this weird finding that people who go on to get schizophrenia tend to be born in winter and in spring. And uh, so I looked in Brisbane and we looked very carefully and we found it was there. Winter, spring, winter-born babies did have an increased risk, but it was really tiny. It's much smaller than what we see in Sweden or Denmark and Finland. So I was feeling like, have I got it wrong? And then I kind of thought, well, no, it's a latitude effect. We're too close to the equator. So that was a really important finding for me that influenced the vitamin D hypothesis that I've spent a lot of time on in recent years.
0: That vitamin D research is about its importance in brain development and its role in disorders like autism and schizophrenia. Along with collaborators, you've been tackling this research from both the fundamental side and the clinical side, right?
1: We're not 100% confident that the hypothesis is correct. So we have looked a few times in various countries and we find there is a link, but we haven't done randomised control trials and that will never be done. It's a little bit like, does smoking cause lung cancer? Well, you just accumulate many, many studies, and eventually the weight of the evidence is so strong, you think, well, this must be the case. But uh, with exposures like prenatal exposures, sometimes it's quite hard to tell. This is a hypothesis that I've been trying to reject for over 20, 25 years now. So what we've done here with the senior researchers at QBI is that we've built animal models that, where we can do experiments. Mice are just like small Humans, they've got the same Lego blocks in their brain as as humans have. They don't have the big overgrown frontal lobes like humans. We're pretty good at manipulating symbols and we've got language and we've got culture. But the mice have brains that have all the parts of a human brain, different ratios though. So we started to do experiments. And I want to acknowledge my colleague, Alan Mackay Sim, previous Australian of the Year, who did these experiments with us. But what we found is when we took out vitamin D, from the diet of rodents, rats, we actually changed the shape of the brain. I remember seeing those results nearly falling off my chair. I thought, no way, no way could we take out this single micronutrient, which was not supposed to impact on the brain anyway. You know, it was all bones. And that lit the fuse for us to really explore what the hell is going on here, what's happening in the brain. There are so many things that vitamin D does to the brain, but they're all very soft and subtle and it's not sufficient to cause schizophrenia, but it may just disrupt the orderly development of the brain. And it could well be that vitamin D is just a test case. There may be other things that could also disrupt, but we can see vitamin D because it has this seasonal variation, which allows us, we're talking about the telescopes, It allows me as an epidemiologist to look at something as simple as birthday as a proxy for vitamin D, because vitamin D goes down in winter. So bright sunshine in summer, you make more vitamin D. In winter, you don't make as much. With the Niels Bohr Professorship in Denmark, we're following up with over 80,000 babies. And we're about halfway through, then coronavirus came along. We've had to shut the lab down. So uh, we're running a bit behind, but we hope to finish the other 40,000 by the end of the year. And then we'll see whether I can reject the hypothesis with that new, bigger sample.
0: How does the fundamental research side fit into that? What's the importance?
1: Well, this is really important because we don't know how the brain works. What I love about QBI is that we have people working on many different disorders in many different species. Humans, that's our favorite species, but also rodents like rats and mice and zebrafish and clownfish and birds and bees. And that allows us to look at a simpler brain. So if you want to unravel how the brain works, Maybe the human brain is the last one you should start on because it's just so overgrown in places and there's so many things we don't understand. But a drosophila or a fly brain, you can actually count the number of cells and you know where they're when they're born and how they're distributed. So I feel we need a bottom-up understanding of how to build a brain, how to break a brain. And if we do that with an understanding of some of these disruptions, like dietary disruptions or genetic disruptions, may feed into the risk of a lot of human brain disorders, whether it be dementia or schizophrenia or multiple sclerosis or migraine or whatever, then that will be the foundation upon which we can maybe prevent and, and maybe have better treatments. So I'm very confident that we will have better treatments for serious mental illness in the next 50 to 100 years, and that will be based on good neuroscience. I feel that very strongly. It's my own private delusion that this will happen. If the future follows the past, if you work on something very carefully and in a studied way, Mother Nature will eventually reveal her secrets. So it took many, many decades for us to discover gravitational waves, to actually measure them. Einstein predicted that they would be there. It was only the last five years with the LIGO that we could actually measure them. So that's going to be the same for the brain. We're talking about QBI is a great place to work, not just because of the biodiversity of people. We have fantastic scientists doing fantastic things on all these different species. And that's the critical mass. That's the stuff that generates That kindles discoveries, but we've got this equipment where we have amazing new microscopes that allow us to see individual molecules moving around in a neuron. Like, no way, unbelievable! It's just so beautiful and so spectacular. So, I feel like the equipment will be there. It is complex. That's okay. We don't throw our hands up and say it's all too hard. It's all mysterious. It's something weird about consciousness. We'll never understand it. It's 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 like cosmic and ethereal and religious and Spooky. No, it's just the brain. Okay. So let's just get on with it. So over the last 15 years, I've been working at QBI three days a week. And so why does a psychiatrist who mainly does epidemiology work in a brain institute? Because I love neuroscience. I love working with neuroscientists. I get excited by what they do. then if I can engage them in the topics that worry me, I can build capacity for that next generation of researchers. The PhD students that we have here the junior postdocs that we have here. We're playing a long game here. not going to discover it all next week or next year or in five years' time. So how do we get there? Well, we just build a workforce and we build a critical mass and we give people permission to work on disorders like schizophrenia that they may not have heard of or autism. I'm very confident that these people will come up with the next parts of the jigsaw that I don't know what they are. I don't know the right questions to ask. But this machine that we have here at QBI, this social tribe of people working on the brain, I feel there's a very good chance that discoveries will come from this building. I say this very sincerely. There will be Nobel Prizes from this building, for sure. Just don't know when. This is really good investment for science because we've got critical mass. Queensland Brain Issued is one of the top institutes in the world. There's so much happening. Over so for 400 people in the building. And we're here for the long haul, okay? So this is what donors need to know, that these donations will be invested wisely, that they will build capacity. We can't guarantee that something will come out by next week or next year or in five years' time, but it will come out. in In my experience, talking to mums and dads of people with schizophrenia, they get this. They say things like, it'd be lovely if we could get a better treatment for my son who's ill or my daughter who's ill. But actually, I just don't want any other parent to go through what we've gone through. And so they know that it's going to be a really long haul. But this is very inspiring for us as clinicians and researchers, that they share this vision. They are in it for the long haul like we are. So I think this is really important. And one of the great things I love about working here at QBI. It keeps me young. I get excited about the ideas. I'm constantly amazed by the beauty of the brain and the wisdom of how many brilliant people there are working in here. It's a great place to work.
0: Coming back to the fundamental science, mental health disorders have often similar symptoms and sometimes treatments don't even work for one person versus another. Is that also why it's important to understand what's going on in the brain?
1: Well, so we have a bunch of treatments, talk therapies and pills that are reasonably effective for some people, but even for people who get well, say for schizophrenia, they may have side effects that are quite crippling. They may have side effects that make them overweight. They get diabetes. And what my research has shown, as a consequence, they can die many years early. So for men, on average, they die about 10 years. Men with any mental disorder die about 10 years earlier than they should. And for women, it's about seven years Tragically, sometimes people will take their own life, but mainly they're dying early because of things like heart attacks, cerebrovascular accidents, diabetes, respiratory disorders, infections, things that most of us die from. So we still have a long way to go, but we need more money for better services because currently we're not very good at treating people early or giving them all the best treatment that they need. The senior researcher in Sydney, a guy called Gavin Andrews, he made the observation many years ago. It's quite a profound moment for many of us around the world where he said, if you look at the entire burden of mental illness, all types of mental disorders all around the world, how much of that burden, and you may think of it as a big pie chart, the entire burden, how much of it can we prevent by our current treatments? It was a very slim pizza slice, about 20, 30%. And then he did a thought experiment. Well, what if we had unlimited money and we could really give all the treatments to everyone promptly? How big would the pizza slice be then? Well, it was not much bigger. Bottom line is there is a huge unavertible burden based on current science. So what do we do? Do we just throw our hands up in despair and say, that's, we'll never work it out, let's give up? Or do we just do the work? And that's what we're doing in this building. We're doing the work. You know, we're all struggling around the world to cope with COVID at the moment. And I saw a really funny, tragic tweet where someone was saying, you know, 10 years ago, my research was shut down because why would anyone fund research on a virus that only affects bats? Well, now this thing, that virus, coronavirus, is the biggest thing for the planet, and it's costing us billions and billions of dollars, untold human misery and deaths. So, of course, we need investment in basic science. That is the engine of discovery. That famous American geneticist, Barbara McClintock, she was working on corn, and she saw that the cobs of corn sometimes have different color kernels, and she did some amazing DNA experiments this is before they discovered the the structure of DNA, and she found that there was information that was jumping around the genome of corn. It's actually quite a complicated genome. Anyway, she she got the Nobel Prize for that. But again, why would anyone fund research the fact that the kernels were a different colour on corn? And then it just turned out to be one of the most seminal discoveries of the way genes work in all animals, in all um, living organisms, whether it be a plant or a human. So our society if we can afford it, we should invest in basic science. We should let people follow topics that may not be immediately apparent. And this is the same for humanities and the arts as well. They may not immediately translate to a biomedical discovery, but it's also a good investment for our society. But particularly with respect to understanding brain diseases, then we need to rely on the people who can make better microscopes. Well, they're engineers and physicists, and we need to work on people that can do mathematics. So when they sequenced the human genome. They realized they needed engineers, they needed software designers, they needed statisticians, they needed bioinformaticians, they needed, they needed mathematicians, they needed high impact computers, as well as wet bench things that could count the DNA. And this was one of the great experiments in the sociology of science because all the people we needed came on board and it worked. And we were able to sequence the human genome. And now, the field of play is that we have in, in contemporary science is much broader. This is what we need. We need people and we need equipment and we need time and the discoveries will come.
0: You have expertise in schizophrenia, which is actually a collection of disorders, right, with psychosis being a common symptom. It's one of the most well-known mental health disorders, featuring in novels and movies and medical texts and studied for hundreds of years. But there's still so much that's unknown about it.
1: It's quite right. It's a poorly understood group of disorders but in fact, we have learned a lot. So I'm a little bit cup half full on this. So when I started my epidemiology, I, I was told and taught that this affects men and women equally. And uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't fit with my experience as a junior doctor. And I saw many more men than women with schizophrenia. About 15 years ago, I did a survey of the entire world literature and showed that, in fact, for every three men, there were two women. We rewrote the textbooks on that one. And then we found variation. So we've learnt a lot more about the epidemiology. We've learned a lot about early symptoms and people like Pat McGorry, ex-Australian of the Year, really brilliant researcher, has um, alerted us to the need to treat people early. My colleagues like Brian Murray and Nomi Ray, who are senior professors here at QBI, have actually unraveled a lot of the genetic risk factors for schizophrenia. We thought there might be one or two genes that could be major genes for this disorder. And lo and behold, Mother Nature has not made it that simple for us. It turns out there's thousands of little genes of small effect. Okay, well, you just get on with it. So that's that's the hand we're dealt with. But one of the frustrating things about schizophrenia is we haven't had any breakthroughs in treatment. The drugs we use, block dopamine, which is one of the neurotransmitter systems that allow neurons to talk to each other. It's a chemical. Those drugs have been around for about 50 years. So we need to do a lot better. It's not a split personality. People have one personality. They're not dangerous axe murderers, despite reading some of the newspaper headings from the 1980s. They're just everyday people like you and me, your kids or my kids, and they have trouble thinking clearly. They hear voices quite often. They have some strange beliefs. It's very scary to have schizophrenia, but the medications we have can manage quite a few of those symptoms, not all of them, and they don't work all the time. Some of my own research has contributed to this, that cannabis, marijuana, can increase your risk of going on to get schizophrenia. We've shown that some types of prenatal infection, prenatal nutrition like low vitamin D can increase the risk of schizophrenia. So this this is the jigsaw puzzle we're piecing together. We've got some edges, we've got some of those pieces that do the sky or whatever it is. We're putting them down there and we are making progress, but there's still a long way to go. It's the same for things like depression as well, which is a very common disorder. It's like the common cold of mental illness. About one in four men and women in Australia will have serious depression. And we've got pretty good treatments for that. Talk therapy is effective for some milder to moderate forms. Pills are okay for treating the more moderate forms. But still, we need better treatments for for that. That's the challenge ahead of us for the next um, few decades.
0: Can you imagine a future where we understand the neuroscience of mental health disorders?
1: Absolutely, yes. Yeah. I think it could be in the next couple of decades. We do have an understanding. We've got insight into some parts of the brain. that We see parts of the brain changing shape over time. We see parts of the brain involved in dopamine that tend to be more active in people even before they've gone on to get schizophrenia. But we just don't have the right telescope yet. Going back to Galileo, we need to build better telescopes. And we don't understand the brain. It's not just that schizophrenia researchers are behind working this out. It's all of neuroscience. It's the same for dementia. We've got a long way to go to understand dementia. But this is part of the field that we work in. We're dealing with a very complicated organ. So we just chip away. We just keep going and come up with new hypotheses. And uh, eventually we'll understand, we'll learn more, but this will still be more to discover.
0: Your more recent research focuses on the risk factors and associated health effects of mental health disorders. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, you know, This is some of the great work I've been doing with my colleagues in Denmark at the National Centre for Register-Based Research. So I work half-time at Aarhus University. Mm -hmm. So the amazing thing about Denmark and some of the other Scandinavian countries is they have health registers. And if you ask for permission under strict conditions, you can get access to uh, de-identified data. So that allows us to map the epidemiology or the patterns of disease. So what I've been doing with the Niels Bohr professorship is looking at comorbidity where people have more than one type of mental disorder or one type of mental disorder in a medical condition like cancer or hypertension or diabetes. We've been very productive in the last few years. My colleague, Oliver Plana-Repol, one of my right postdocs, had a paper published in The Lancet late last year where we look at how mental illnesses impact on your lifespan. And that was pretty scary because we see that some disorders, like substance use disorder, can shorten people's lives by up to 14 years, whereas things like anxiety and depression shorten it slightly much less. And then this year, one of my staff, Natalie Moman and colleagues published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine where we did the biggest study ever of the link between mental disorders and general medical conditions. It's like a big Google Earth map where we look at all of them and then you can drill down and get to the street level and you get to the house level. So we put that on the internet and it's interactive data visualisation. So that's great fun. I could not do that in Australia. We don't have the data sets to do it. It's like building that telescope, that Galileo. They have telescopes that we don't have in Australia. So I go to Denmark to do that work. But the thing about the Niels Bohr Professorship is that I was allowed to do big projects, what I call blue sky projects. So we're not going to do something small, let's do them all. <laughs> so you need a lot of money, you need a lot of time, you need a lot of expertise to do that. So the projects that have been coming out in the last year or so are the end point of many years, hard work, still got a few more years ahead of us. And we've got a few more projects that we want to tackle. But again, going back to this issue of building capacity, I'm very confident that there'll be a small group of very talented researchers who can take the baton forward and learn more about mental illnesses as independent researchers.
0: It seems like you have to be observant to make these connections and discoveries.
1: And it's not just being observant. You actually need places like QBI. You need the right laboratories to actually follow through. It's very easy to come up with hypotheses. You can just have a few beers, have a few pizzas, have a laugh with some mates. You can generate dozens of hypotheses. That's the easy bit. The hard work is getting the data. And that's where you build the telescopes and build the equipment and do the animal experiments. And they may not work. And you've got to refine your technique and take years and years to do it. And it's expensive. So having the idea seriously is the easiest bit reading the data properly and having the creative energy, you do need to be alert, you do need to be open to those discoveries, but then you need the expensive kit and you need the expensive labs and you need the fund that people support. So that's really important why we need to invest in science and philanthropy needs to give to science because you just never know where that next big discovery is going to come from. And we need to lay the foundation to make the machine that'll make those discoveries.
0: You've had a long and amazing career, been recognised with prestigious awards. What do you see as your biggest contribution to science?
1: I think it would be that mental illness is an important target for the brain sciences. And, uh, And I think that's happened. It's not just me, it's the whole field. We all put a lot of our own blood, sweat and tears into understanding mental illness. I hope that mental illness can still figure prominently within the portfolio of brain sciences. I think it will. I think that there there is an understanding that these are important targets. They cause a lot of the burden of disease in our society and they deserve the best neuroscience that we can offer.
0: That was Professor John McGrath talking about the importance of mistakes in science and linking fundamental and clinical research. And if you'd like to learn more or support the work we do at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. You can also download a copy of our latest magazine, The Brain, The Nature of Discovery. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.